You're listening to Up Your Brave on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to the Up Your Brave show here with Natalie Cutler-Welsh on Reality Check Radio. And my next guest is Tim Bean. We're going to be diving into the topic of no excuses, the hard edge of health. Ooh, sounds exciting. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you so much, Natalie. A great pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to dive in and chat with you today, Tim. Tim, you and I met probably eight months ago or so, and we're both from the professional speakers area, and we met, um, and I'm so excited to hear what you've been up to. I know you've been jet-setting. For those of you that haven't met Tim before, um, he describes himself as an executive longevity specialist, but he's been known in London's social circles as the merciless Mr. Bean. Ooh, we're going to dive into that too. With over 30 years at the top end of international health and wellness industry, he's worked with celebrities and social high flyers, and his corporate clients have included seven of the world's 10 biggest investment banks. Corporate speaker, TV presenter, and radio show host, he has also written several books, the latest of which, The Wealthy Body and Business, has been released worldwide. He is currently based in Timaru, where together with his wife, Anne, he owns and operates Performance Health Club, a large gym which notably stood against discrimination and remained open through the madness of the mandates and the V-passes. Recently returned from a lecture tour overseas, please welcome Tim Bean. So good to have you on the show, Tim. Oh, that's terrific. What? Uh, well, what an intro. <laughs> where do we go from there? Well, you know, it's funny. I've been trying to pin you down. I think ever since I started my show six months ago, I was like, oh, be great to get Tim on the show. I do believe in divine timing. I know you've been a busy man, not just busy, but jet setting all over the place. How are you? Um, like, tell us how you got to this point uh, in being the go-to guy. And I want to hear a little bit more about the merciless Mr. Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean. Tell us a bit of backstory. Oh, well, uh, yes. Well, First of all, let's let's set the scene. Um, I'm I'm not someone that's always been super fit. I'm not someone that's always been super healthy or in great shape. Uh, there was a time early in, in my teens where I was very sporty, but then I sort of got lazy, got into a job where I wasn't doing much, eating a lot of takeaways, and yeah, I, I ballooned out to I think it was 122 kilos, uh, and not an ounce of it was muscle. And that was at the age of 25. Mm. And I recall I went to my doctors for a medical for the insurance. Uh, and he turned me down on it. And I, to start with, I was baffled because I think I was living in complete denial that there was anything wrong with my health uh, up until that point. And uh, as he said to me, he said, well, look, your your cholesterol is 9.7. I haven't seen a level of 9.7 before. Uh, blood pressure was 150 over 110. Cholest um, uh, and body mass index, but your, the BMI rated me as morbidly obese i also had a strong history of heart disease in the family and also diabetes so it was kind of a perfect storm and the doctor looked at me and he said you're quite mad you know living the life you're doing you you are not going to be alive to see your 30th birthday and looking back with what i know now i think you'd be absolutely correct uh so that was that was a line in the sand metaphorically for me that i sort of drew and then stepped over and, and swore i would never go back to that sort of lifestyle now, there's been a couple of times where I've sort of erred on the other side of that line every now and again. Um, but by and large, that was the turning point in my life. And uh, that culminated in my wife and I getting together and opening 
our health club here in, in Timaru Performance Training Company as it was back then in 1990. And uh, by the time we got to 1998, we'd built the membership up to over a thousand members. We had just won an international award for top performing health club in Australasia. And in 2000, we decided we wanted to go overseas and do a, a six month sabbatical, go around all the big clubs in the States, pretty much see what uh protocols what what things were going on in the industry possibly any ideas that we could maybe pinch and and bring back to uh, here to new zealand so we went to that and did did the big conferences the big ursa conference and our son and daughter-in-law were over in the uk at the time and they said well kind of be rude of you to go home and not call by and see us uh, so so we went via the uk and ended up staying there um which none more surprised than us, really, um, principally because once we got there, we realized that in the industry, as we were sort of doing some research in that area, their facilities, all those sorts of things were absolutely top notch. But the protocols that they were working within the clubs with personal training, with nutrition around exercise, kind of went backwards when we were comparing to the U.S., methodologies and protocols which tend to lead the charge in the health and well-being industry so we ended up staying there uh, and my wife was uh, working in the in the health clinic at the harbour club and i was in charge of the of the fitness side of things there which would be probably the top club in london at the time uh, notably um, princess diana and the two princes were members there at the time and um uh, various other notables and celebrities you know top models but also top flight business people um, serious, high-level business people. And we got to know them, but also to understand that underneath, their problems were the same as everybody else's in terms of juggling a busy lifestyle, a stressful lifestyle. How should they exercise? When should they eat? What should they eat? What about their sleep patterns? All these problems were the same. So when our tenure at the Harbour Club finished, <clears throat> which was a temporary position, we started doing some consulting work and getting alongside people and saying, well, this is what we think you should do. And we started getting really amazing results. So we started working with some of their executive teams in some of these big companies. And in 2008, when the global financial crash uh, happened, that kind of came to a very abrupt stop. People were saying, well, I, you know, we're just, we don't know if we've even got an executive team next month. So we're just going to put a pause on that. And we had to think, what can we do to reach more people uh, at an easier gain and, and within a budget that's reasonable for them as well? So that's when we decided to turn, or I decided to turn into corporate speaking. So I did a few training courses and those sorts of things. Anne was already a prolific researcher and writer and already written hundreds of articles on, on, on the subject. And so I started that side of things, and I've discovered I really love it. I really enjoy that engagement with an audience and, and doing the Q&A afterwards and getting alongside people, and, um, and it has been very good to us as well, I have to say. We've been very privileged. We've, I think we've traveled and spoken in over 27 different countries, and that is ongoing now that we've come out of this whole um, this paralytic fear of lockdowns and so forth that's embraced the world in the last uh, two to three years and things are opening up. People are so hungry for live events again uh, and to hear people's um, on-the-spot opinions of, of of the subject matter you're talking about. So that's where we are today. And, and as you said, we've just come back from a, um, a, a medical conference in Thailand, which I think was three days, no, four days, uh, 70 lectures in there. And for a change, it was great just to actually sit in the audience 
uh, for most of that and and absorb the information. And that is primarily where we can tap into the latest cutting-edge research from the world's top doctors, um, professors, scientists, researchers uh, on health and well-being and, and the messages that they're containing, the latest research, how can we distill that into useful things for our clients and for people that we're engaging with? And so that's pretty much what's got us got us here today. Uh, and, and, and being back in New Zealand, we moved back just before the lockdowns in 2019, or late 2018, sort of on a more steady basis. We have... Um, three grown-up children and eight grandchildren now. So we thought, well, we, we don't want to miss out on those years because you can't buy those years back if you're away. Uh, and it's been wonderful being here. We rebooted the health club here, which had, had actually closed down. And uh, and life is good. Life is good. We've, we've sort of been here. We are extremely worried with the direction this country's going in at the moment. But my bigger worry is the condition of the health of the people of New Zealand, because that over the last three years particularly has been seriously, seriously, not just neglected, but I think, uh, and it's just my opinion, I think it's been abused. Uh, and and I think people people are desperate to do something to get into a better shape and to build their own resilience and their health and their well-being um, for a longer, healthier, active life for whatever's around the corner. You talked about when you were younger and having that appointment with the doctor, which I'm going to call a reality check moment. Do you think the last three years for Kiwis, you know, in terms of the health piece, has been a bit of a reality check or a wake-up call for us in terms of not just our own personal health, but the health system? I think so. There's two There's two conversations. I hear all the time that what was previously the DHB is under a lot of pressure and we're, we're chronically underfunded and we have limited resources and we don't have enough staff and the facilities are poor. A lot of the equipment's outdated. Um, people can't get appointments. And, and they're saying that the system is not geared to cope. I think that's partially true. I think the bigger problem is that we're experiencing a huge overwhelm in sickness and disease in the pub, from the public. Uh, and the system that was coping perfectly well beforehand is struggling and groaning and breaking under the pressure. Uh, so I, I think in the in the light of that, definitely some things should have been put in place to to build and rebuild and strengthen and reinforce the system that we have. But I think there's many aspects of the system that need a complete rethink. Uh, I'm not sure that it's as, as functional as it should be in terms of patient-specific individualized medicine and the opportunities for particularly GPs to to to, to follow that path um, rather than um, having generic protocols that everyone is dictated to follow, whether that's good for the individual or not. I think that's a serious mistake. I think the other thing is um, we have to come to the understanding that, that um, if you think about it, our physiology is one is an ancient physiology. And our DNA hasn't changed in the last 100 to 150,000 years. We, we are today who our hunter-gatherer ancestors were all those years ago. And if you think about it, that's correct. Our skeleton's the same. Our musculature's the same. Circulatory systems, endocrine systems, nervous systems, everything is still the same. What has changed is we are now hunter-gatherers <clears throat> And we're surviving and, and trying to live in a concrete jungle. Mm. Uh, and by the way, I should say that's a concrete jungle of our own making. Uh, and this is where we're starting to get a lot of problems because there's responses and the things that we do in this new environment are not necessarily congruent with how our system is geared to operate effectively. And this is creating a lot of, a lot of the problems that we see. 
I think we need to come to the understanding that this, this is a marvelous, marvelously capable physiology that we have, that we're in possession of. It's, it's, it's incredibly valuable. And if we can come to the understanding that it's our job to take care of it, not anybody else's, not your doctor, not your physio, not your chiropractor, your yoga instructor, personal trainer, health guru, whoever, it's your health and your job to manage it effectively, the same as anything else that goes on in your life. And this is where I think uh, a serious misstep has occurred, because not since the the, the um, a whole crisis began, if you call it that, in 2020, I think 20th of March, we started our first lockdown. Uh, not since then has the um, the Ministry of Health, the Minister of Health, the Director General of Health, uttered a single word about actual health. I mean, if you think about it, they've, they've changed the conversation, I think hijacked the conversation and made it one of safety, when we really should have been thinking about health. What are things that everyday New Zealanders can do to boost their immune system and get into a healthier state? Because right from the start, we were told and we were aware and we're still aware these sorts of things are failures of the immune system to deal with with the invasion of whatever is a virus or, or, or um, uh, any other pathogens that come our way. And our immune systems are failing, but nothing from the government at all. All it was about safety. Now, imagine if that conversation had changed. And instead of saying, you know, keep a safe distance, uh, um, you know, we need to do this particular thing to, you know, keep keep grandma health, um, keep grandma safe and all this sort of thing, keep yourself safe. What if they said, do this to keep grandma healthy? Mm -hmm. Then you suddenly start to think of two things. Well, we need to do things to keep grandma healthy because clearly that's something that we need to boost up in a high-risk population. But second thing is, whatever the protocol is being put towards us, isn't doing that uh, and therefore is a nonsense. And so that's our mission now is to sort of say, well, listen, let's let's reset that conversation and say, what can we do to rebuild our health? What can we do to get to a higher state of health where we're more robust, more resilient? Uh, we have greater defenses against anything that's coming our way. But there's a lot to undo and then there's a lot to rebuild on the back of it. So that's our main thrust is trying to help people to to come to terms with that and then to get their health up to a higher level. Well, let's dive into that because I, I, I wrote down, you know, proactive versus paranoid because there was no messaging on how to be proactive in terms of the food that we're taking, you know, having us going out into the sun. It was all around, you know, safety and fear and that type of thing. So you've been to all these incredible conferences. I think you said you went to 27 countries, which is just amazing. Um, given what you gleaned at those and the many years of your own personal experience, can you give us some tangible things, proactive things that people can do? Anything that's a little bit different from what you know we might already know, but some proactive things that people can do to raise their immunity or to stay healthy, um, so they before they get to that point of um, getting unwell. I, I think the first one is is just to summarize what we just covered is don't abdicate responsibility for your own health to anyone else. I think that's the first step. Once you accept responsibility and accountability for your health, that changes the internal conversations you'll have in your head. Uh, and you will be able to keep your eyes wide open for opportunities and things that you can do to start uh, 
or rather to stop doing things that are negatively impacting your health and start doing the things that will positively impact your health. I mean, for years in the fitness industry, we've been guilty of saying to people, look, this isn't rocket science, you know. (laughs) All you need to do is get more exercise, eat less food, you know. Move your legs, shut your mouth. It's not that tricky. Um, But in fact, it is a little bit more complicated than that, and every human being is different, which is why I think, you know, a lot of diets fail if you take that on board. You see, you could go on a diet to lose weight, um, and most weight loss diets work while you're on them. But that's the same as getting on a bus. That implies at some point you're going to get off. But in my case, when I came off a diet, and, I, and I've been on every diet under the sun, honestly, I tell you, in my, in, my, in my journey to lose weight, I spent about two and a half years and actually ended up putting on more weight than I lost overall until I woke up to the fact that you can't have a lean body and a fat head. Now, as long as you're thinking, as long as I was thinking like a fat guy, that would never change. And so every time I came off a diet, I'd just go back to what it was that was making me overweight and, un- and unpleasant and unhealthy in the first place. And, and so that just, that just didn't solve anything. It was just a vicious cycle. So I think if people can get in their heads, you're responsible. The second thing is uh, there's very much a connection uh, between how you think and your behaviors. If you start thinking differently, your behaviors will respond accordingly. And that's when I found the struggle started to uh, started to become a lot easier. It almost became second nature. The thing that made the most initial impact was I started going to the gym. Now, hear me out on this. Um, I wasn't really particularly a gym bunny at all. Uh, and you can imagine 122 kilos or 118 as it was, I think, when I first started going to the gym, uh, wearing sort of cycle pants and a tight lycra top wasn't wasn't the best fashion look for me. So I wasn't motivated to go to the gym particularly. And the gym tended to be all the lycra brigade or the meatheads. And, and that was the, the kind of people who went. And so it was quite enlightening to go to a gym, which was World Gym in Christchurch, where they were very much open to anybody who wanted to get in shape, and they they were able to to set you on a path. But I found the weight training was the thing that made the difference. And since then, alluding to what you said earlier, Natalie, is all of the conferences that we go to, and particularly the medical conferences where I'm invited to speak, I also get to sit in the audience of that. And the message that comes across very, very clearly is strong people stay young. Strong people stay young. So we're talking about longevity here and your capacity to function in an engaged way as you age. Now, I think there's there's a difference uh, between um, being alive and being kept alive because everybody talks about, you know, we're all living longer. If you look at the evidence, we're not necessarily living longer. We're just taking longer to die. Now, that's upsets a few people's thinking. But that's correct. It just seems that earlier and earlier we're becoming reliant on on medication, on operations, on all these sorts of things, just to keep us going until, uh, you know, in, in the end we 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 peg out. But it doesn't have to be that way. We need to take, as you said, a proactive approach on this. Uh, and the beauty of of particularly lifting weights is it has other spin-off advantages. Yes, it will make you stronger. It will improve your posture. It will improve. It will also improve metabolic capacity. It will also improve your ability to move. Um, we know that frailty is one of the key indicators for, for an early death when it comes to aging. And we also know that over 50% of people who go to a care home or a rest home or an aged care facility, there's nothing medically wrong with them. They're just simply frail. 
they've lost the strength to be able to get in and out of a bath, in and out of a car, up and down stairs, even you know, carry their groceries, walk from the kitchen to the living room without tripping on the carpet. And we have seen so many studies where a a specifically designed program to improve strength in a balanced way over the whole physiology not only improves posture, it eliminates things like back pain, poor energy, um, but also enables people to live a more active life and therefore remain functionally independent. So my advice to people would be if you do one thing exercise-wise, if you've been doing absolutely nothing and you're really not in great shape, then definitely just start maybe by walking to the letterbox and back, extending that out. But I would suggest we start thinking about getting stronger first. We have a we have a saying uh, in the club, and, and, and I, I have in my lectures, build before you burn. Now, one reason is metabolically that just makes sense. If you're in the workout and you're doing weights, do the weights before cardio, never the other way around. Uh, and again, that flies in the face of what a lot of people do. Um, but I'm appreciative that probably a lot of your audience are already in the gym. If they're doing those sort of workouts, always do weights first, cardio after. There's a lot of science. It's another half hour lecture in behind that. But essentially, it means that you're you're lifting weights with high glycogen levels where you can lift weights effectively and therefore get a better result from that. If you do cardio straight after that as part of that workout, your conversion to aerobic is much faster than if you're doing it from cold at the start. And when you finish, you still remain in fat burning mode for another 30 to 40 minutes after. And we call that the big fat bonus. Uh, so there's an advantage to doing it that way. And when we have clients doing the build before you burn routine, we notice their results are an awful lot faster. They're able to build muscle instead of wear muscle down. Uh, and uh, everything seems to pick up at a much faster rate from there. We also know, and here's an interesting side that is more recent, research by Professor Dr. Maria Fiataroni Singh from the University of, of Sydney, uh, where she was doing a study on weight training and the prevention of frailty with aging, also discovered in those candidates that lifting heavy weights was uh, led to a 50% decrease in depression in those candidates and was as effective as the default medication in treating depression. So that is absolutely earth shattering. If, if this study is followed up by more peer reviewed studies and, and validated correctly in that regard, this will turn the management of mental health on its head. Because here we have so many things, even the, even the um, painkillers, opioids, all those sorts of things, which are designed to, to, to um, assist people in these sort of uh, conditions, but also psychotropics and all the drugs that people are on who are supposedly depressed. Um, here we have a simple exercise strategy, which, would, which has no uh, downside. There are no side effects that are, that are negative. Uh, with lifting weights and getting stronger, but will totally bring people to a better place of mental well-being. Uh, and if this is correct, and, and I'm convinced that it is from my own experience and from the clients that we have, uh, this could be a major, major strategy. I'm going to jump in there because I absolutely agree with you. I feel like the health culture, and I can only speak for New Zealand because I've lived here more than half my life now, 28 years or whatever. Um it seems to be, you know, write a script and pop a pill, right, is quite often the go-to uh, advice or the go-to guidance from, uh, you know, doctors, mm -hmm. I would say, in my experience. And I think that, yeah, when we have such a huge medical, um, mental health 
issue here in New Zealand and further afield, something like not just saying exercise, but the research that you just mentioned about the weightlifting and the impact that can have on happiness, depression, it sounds like a game changer. You know, do you think that's something the government will wake up and start to fund something like that? I don't know, because it's becoming it's becoming a much more significant portion of government expenditure in the health budget as the management of but also what's ignored is the societal impact of this mm-hmm. if you're a member of a family where somebody is suffering from clinical depression and we have to understand there's a number of aspects to this there's also a lot of chemistry going on in the brain which uh which, which is an essential and an influential part of of this uh, of this condition and people who suffer from depression will know that it's not just simply a matter of saying oh come on sort yourself out pick yourself up by your bootstraps and box on and those sorts of things there's, there's a lot of things going on at different levels our belief is that if you can look at the foundation of health and well-being and if you look at the spectrum at the bottom there's the the physicality of health and well-being then there is the emotional aspects of health and well-being, emotional health, and then mental health, and then spiritual health, which is all about people's ability to achieve what they want to in life, to achieve their their why, if you like. Um, it all starts, though, at the bottom, at the foundation. Uh, and if you can bring somebody where exercise-wise their body is functioning in, in a great way, that also means then that their organs, and particularly the organs and, and the glands that produce their hormones, will put them in a better emotional state. Serotonin, dopamine, melatonin, all those things will be in much better balance if the body is running more effectively and efficiently. And there are there is no longer the influence of other factors which is clouding that and, and creating some of these problems. Um, I'm particularly concerned about the consumption of caffeine and turing from energy drinks in our adolescent population right now. What's uh, the and this is affecting their mental health. Turing, T A U R I N E. I think the statistic was 30,000 adolescents last year were admitted to American hospitals from turing poisoning. And combined with caffeine, is having a devastating effect on their systems. Um, particularly, it's, it's over amping. Uh, in fact, it's destroying their adrenal function and 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 uh, and their ability to manage stress uh, and to effectively achieve balance. How that affects us as we're older? Well, most of our hormones, our, our steroid hormones that make us alpha males and alpha females, uh, if you like, once they pass the age of 30 to 35, are no longer made in the ovaries and the testes, but are now made in the adrenal glands. So if you're in a state of chronic stress where cortisol levels are always high and elevated, as many people have been in the last three years, and you can argue whether that's we've been deliberately put in that position or not, um, the, that elevated cortisol has been suppressing the production of testosterone and estrogen that make men men and women women. Uh, and I think what we're seeing is a decline in the polarity of that. And where we're starting to get more effeminized males uh, and less female dominant females. And I think this sort of this, I don't know what you call it, this androgenesis, if you like, uh, is a dangerous thing because it's changing the way people can respond, um, not just under stress, but respond in their relationships with other people and their relationships in the workplace and their ability to even just deal with the simple things of life, you know, how to manage their bank account balances and how to shop for groceries. And people are becoming more disenfranchised with their with their physiological identity. I think it's a very, very dangerous thing um, because there doesn't seem to be much 
conversation and any will or drive from the health system and therefore the government to do anything about it. You would almost think it was deliberate neglect if you were to take that sort of view on things, which I do. I, I think it's more than neglect. I think there's a deliberate thing going on. And you can factor in, you know, where I've, I've heard um, a lot of your wonderful interviews with, with people that you've had about the education system and what's going on there. And I think that's all part of it as well. But from my perspective, from health and wellbeing as, at, at a physiological level, there is a lot we can do to start turning that around and reclaiming back our biological identities. Well, I'm so glad you addressed that. And you're right. There's so much going on around that gender ideology in terms of um, education and influencing education, infiltrating education, I'm even going to say. But we, what we haven't heard a lot about is the nutrition side of it. And you're right, these energy drinks. And I've I've heard about you know soy milk or chicken if it's not free range, you know, that has possibly with extra hormones. Is is this all adding to that kind of androgyny possibly um, of the impact of some nutrition on how people show up in terms of their physiological body? Oh, absolutely. With, without any question at all. And, and even this drive under the guise, which I think is a total fraud of, of um, the urgency of climate change. Is the climate changing? Yes. Is it urgent? Is it critical? I, I don't believe it is. Uh, when you look at the macro statistics going back not just a hundred years but thousands of years, then then this is what we see. It's quite a a normal thing. But behind it is this drive to um, kill the farming industry, and we've seen the attack happening in the Netherlands, which they've been fighting against, and this is happening in the UK and globally, worldwide. When we think of it, you know, even things like a steak contains really essential vitamins, nutrients, minerals. For example, steak is as has most people think steak, you know, a piece of steak or a lamb chop, well, that's just protein and it's fat, right? <laughs> and so therefore it comes from an animal. If we don't want to have so many animals, you know, burping and farting, then we can get rid of them and just get our protein and fat from other sources. But Listen, red meat also contains calcium, copper, iron, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium, selenium, zinc. It has choline, which is the same thing that's in egg yolks, which is really, really good foundational building blocks for your brain. It's got omega-3s, very high in omega-3 in New Zealand because we have free-range pasture-raised stock. Um, but also on the vitamins, it's vitamin K, vitamin E, D, B12, B6, uh, folic acid, zinc, niacin, Interestingly, it's also high in riboflavin, thiamine, and vitamin A, which are ingredients that we see added into processed, highly refined breakfast cereals. Mm. Um, why do they add it in? Well, because the processing and the and and the the refining process destroys all those vitamins that would otherwise be in a natural product. So they then have to add them back in. And in fact, when you think of it, most breakfast cereals are completely nutritionally not only deficient but dangerous. Uh, because they have an inflammatory effect uh, on our body systems. You can track back the point where cereals became a big thing through companies like Sanitarium and and uh, um, uh, the founder of, of that kind of thing, Kellogg, who essentially had an industry producing grain-based cereals to replace um, meat-based products and so forth that people were eating for breakfast. And that's that's why, arguably, mm. cereals have taken such a foothold. But they're anti-nutrients. There's, there's three things that will knock us out in life, and that is inflammation, oxidation, or degeneration. So essentially, we'll either burn up, rust out, or fall apart. Uh, and so the inflammation thing is is probably the most dangerous because that's where we see the start of a lot of inflammatory diseases such as uh, cancer, for example. 
but it also affects our gut biome. And our gut biome is responsible for so much of our well-being. And the gut is directly linked to the brain. And so what goes on in the gut goes on in the brain. Uh, and if we're talking about mental health, your mental health is going to be determined by your gut health. Your gut health is determined by all the micronutrients, enzymes, all those things that you consume in your food. I think if we're going to address that, we need to start we need to start thinking that we should be eating food that's grown on a farm, not that's made in a lab or, or in fact processed in a factory. If it comes out of a packet, if it's got a list of ingredients a mile long, it's probably not food you should be putting into your system and expecting a good outcome. Yes, you can eat that thing from time to time, but just don't expect a good outcome from that. As simple as that. Wow. I mean, a lot of people will know that some foods, you know, are better than others. I'm not I'm not a cereal girl myself. I'm more of like an eggs benedict person. You know, I have like salmon and spinach and eggs like that's my breakfast all the time. Um, but, you know, interestingly, I used to be vegetarian for 15 years when I was 16. One day I suddenly went cold turkey, pun intended, and did not eat meat <laughs> for 15 years. Um but and my husband went from being paleo to being vegan, uh, which he's been for about seven years. And I've gone the opposite. I just went back to meat, and um, well, I just eat everything, anything and everything. But I hear what you're saying. Sometimes a lot of those products that have had everything stripped out of them are going to add to the inflammation. So I'm hoping for our listeners that you're getting some great insight. Tim, as you can tell, is a wealth of knowledge. I know we could take this conversation in so many directions. Um, you can text us. Let us know what's resonating for you. Let us know what you've learned. The text is 2057 or email, if that's your vibe, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Tim, the topic today is no excuses, the hard edge of health. Is that really around accountability? Is that what you mean? I know you've mentioned accountability, taking, accepting responsibility. Is that what you mean by the hard edge of health? Yes, I think it is. Uh, we've, I call it the hard edge of health because this is not about the soft edge of health. Mm. And I think you look around, you see plenty of people practicing the soft edge of health, and it is not working. It's not working at all. So we need to actually uh, sit up and pay attention and look at the facts and say, gosh, this is heading in the wrong direction. What can we do? We're going to have to swallow some hard pills, and I mean that metaphorically in terms of how we behave around our own health. As I said, there's no help coming, so don't, don't be looking to the government or your doctor or GPs for, for help. They've got seven minutes to see you, and when you go into the doctor's And they're surgery, just going to write you a script, in my opinion. Well, well, what choice do they have? Because most patients, and and you know, we we talk to people on a daily basis. They go to the doctors. They have something wrong with them. So the doctor has to sit down and download all the symptoms, the ailments, the complaints of the patient. They have to then analyze that, try and figure out what's going on, and then say to the patient, "Okay, what you need to do is go to the gym, sign up at the gym, start lifting weights. I want you to stop eating this processed food, start eating whole meats, fresh proteins, fresh vegetables, organic, you know, uncontaminated vegetables, and uh, and you will see over the next not six months maybe, but twelve months, three years, five years, you will come right and your health will restore itself. No patient is going to accept that. They want something that they can go away with a piece of paper in their hand, go to the pharmacy, pick it up, and feel better." that mm -hmm. afternoon. Mm -hmm. And that is the problem that we have is, is part of our expectation. So if we say to people, no, 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 you are responsible for your health. You are accountable for your own health. The actions that you take will determine your own health. Then people start thinking a little bit differently and think, well, oh, okay, so what do I need to do? And when people stop and think about it, most times they can come up with two or three things they know they are not doing so well 
or are doing that they shouldn't be doing that they could stop tomorrow that would see almost an instant improvement in their health and well-being, whether it's their energy, whether it's staying up late, you know, watching TV, playing game, watching Netflix till midnight, then wondering why they get up at six o'clock in the morning to go to work and they feel more tired than they went to bed. Mm. Well, duh, there's a reason for this. You know, we need we need to start um, getting smart about how we behave with ourselves. And most people are smart enough to know what's going on, but a lot of people simply build a wall around that and live in denial and think, well, you know, I'm fine. I'm I'm not in hospital. You know, I'm not really, really sick. You know, I'm, if I take these pills, I'll be fine and I can manage. But honestly, Natalie, that's not life. That's not what life is about. And there's nothing that's made in a lab that you can put in your mouth that doesn't have a side effect, that doesn't have a consequence. Just look at the label, open the medication you're taking, look at that sheet inside it and read it and you will see you know, maybe maybe there's a better way of doing it. Is is there something? Our medical director in the US, Dr. Sergey Zugin, has a phrase, and he calls it acquired physiologic errors. You, in most cases, you weren't born with these things. Something you've been doing has created a physiologic error. In which case, uh, that could be undone, perhaps, if the damage hasn't been too great. And when it comes to aging, it's a, it's a similar sort of a thing. If we regard aging as being a bit like standing on a down escalator and, and and as we head towards the bottom all at the same pace uh all the nuts and bolts that have held us together kind of come loose and fall off by the time we get to the bottom and that's the finish um but there are some people by the way they live their lives seem to be walking down towards the bottom faster than everybody else uh we know that 80 percent of the things that knock us out early or create disability and disease that affects our lifestyle and ability to live a, a functional lifestyle into old age, 80% of those things are what they call lifestyle factors. So these are decisions that we've made, the environment that we live in, those sorts of things, over which we have some control. So if we were to start identifying that and saying, look, I'm going to do that a bit differently. I'm going to cut down drinking five coffees a day and maybe just have one. I'm going to stop drinking alcohol every evening with dinner because that's that's actually a really dangerous thing to do. And just maybe save it and have a glass of wine at the weekend. Save it for special occasions. I'll make sure I go to bed by 10 p.m. because that's going to help reset my circadian rhythms and give me a much more restful sleep. I'm going to go to the gym and lift weights because that's going to change a lot of things about my physio physiology and my, and my chemical composition. All these little things that, that we call little clicks, things that you can put into your lifestyle, will start making a difference. And that would be the same as if you turned around on that escalator of aging and started walking back up towards the top. Mm -hmm. Is it easy? No. Aging well is not for sissies. This is something you need a bit of a backbone to do. You need. You to have so many good catchphrases. I mean, I my audience knows I love a good catchphrase, oh, and good. you have just dished out at like at least five. That carry on <laughs> for sissy. Um, so if you yeah, so you need you need to have a bit of backbone to do this. Why is it hard? Because everybody else is coming down the other way. Have you ever tried walking up or down escalator? Yes, and if you're not so fast, you're still going to get carried down to the bottom, just not as fast as everybody else. And if you do a really good job of it, you can actually maintain a higher standard of health and physiologically turn back the age clock. People say it's a myth. It's not a myth. You can turn back the age clock when you're comparing to the, the rate of aging that people do. And there's a difference between being old uh, and aging. Let's be very clear about this. Are we all old? Yes, we're a second older than we were a second ago or a minute ago or a day or a year ago. How are we aging? So it's about the condition that we have for the time that we're here. 
And people in our generation, Natalie, and, and even older, uh, have the prospect of living an active lifestyle, an active life beyond 100 years of age. Now, a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to live beyond 100 years of age. It's going to be miserable. Yeah, well, no, you don't want to be kept alive to 100 years of age. Mm -hmm. But if you're 100 years of age and you're still out, you get your driver's license every year, you know, go water skiing with the great-grandchildren, you can go climb a, climb a hill if you wanted to, ride a bike if you wanted to, those sorts of things, and then just one morning wake up dead. That's kind of, that's kind of the way that most people would want, to, would, would want to live that life if they lived that uh, time. But the thing is, you know, medical technology can help us get there, but it won't work if we don't have a great foundation to build it on. And so that's our message. Build that foundation now. Get strong, get fit, get healthier, become well-nourished, become intelligent about your nutrition, become tactical and strategic about your sleep, rest, and recovery strategies. And that will put you in a much stronger position to be able to utilize to the maximum the interventions or protocols that you might choose to adopt to help you get there successfully without having to rely on something that's dictated to you exactly. from which you are likely to suffer quite badly as you age. You paint a good picture of vitality right till the very end. And for those people listening, if you want to be held accountable, you can send us a message. Let us know what you are going to possibly lovingly let go of or lessen in your life. It might be that nightly wine or the going to bed late thing. Um, or maybe you're going to adopt something new. Maybe it is the gym, doing weights at the gym. Let us know. You can send us a text 2057. Tim, I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction because you having this gym that you do in Timaru, by the way, mm -hmm. shout out to Timaru, where I first Hi. moved to all the way from Toronto to Timaru, New Zealand. Um, and my grandmother actually used to live there and she got married in Timaru. Uh, so shout out to Timaru. But in, at your gym, you have you're in this unique position where you have almost like this small study of people whose health you know and you've seen. Um, over the years, have you got any insight into how people's health has changed? And I guess I'm really asking around um, people that are maybe vaccinated, unvaccinated. Have you noticed any any trends? I see where you're going with this. <laughs> and the answer is, without question, yes. Um, we take a more hands-on approach to the health of our members than, than many clubs, particularly uh, not so much experience that we have in New Zealand, but certainly overseas where there's a lot of these 24-7 clubs that you can sign up online and you get given a code and you can just turn up to the gym and enter your code and you're in the gym doing whatever. There's no sort of supervision or anything. You just It's a tick box thing to make sure you just haven't had a triple heart bypass operation uh, and, and that sort of thing. There's no you know contraindicators that are going to flag up. Uh, but in our club, we we are quite involved. We spend at least half an hour sitting down with every person that comes in as a member and get their medical history, their injury history, their training history. So we know pretty much, well, in some cases, more than their doctor knows about them and what's going on in their lifestyle. But also we're discussing their problems, how it affects them. You know, are, are they do they have an injury that's affecting other things of their life? Does it mean they can't get the job they want to get? Are they, you know, on a disability benefit? You know, all these sorts of things. Uh, so we have quite a good handle on that. We we speak to them on a daily basis as well. It's a very finite set. So our 500 members, uh, we know all of them by name and we know everything about them. What we have seen, uh, and in your introduction, you alluded to the fact that during during the lockdowns, apart from the initial lockdown, well, we nobody sort of knew what ground we stood on. 
Um, once the the amendments and the Health Act and, and all those sorts of things came out, we were able to navigate through that to the extent that we said, you know, actually, we, we are going to stay open. We're not going to discriminate against those members who desperately need our help and desperately need to keep coming into the gym through this time to manage their stress, to help with depression, to to keep their mind and their bodies in the shape that they should be and could be to be resilient against whatever is going around. Um, and and once we made that stance, and we got a lot of pushback from some of our members who were saying, oh, what you're doing is dangerous, this is not right, and 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 we had to make a very bold move to say, you know what, we're we are going to stand for the people who need us more, uh, and remained open. And we were able to successfully navigate a legal way to do that and main, you know, maintain uh, maintain compliance, if you like, but also serve our members and serve Timaru in the best way that we could. What we've noticed since, however, is a lot of our members who uh, were in the peak of health. Uh, Suddenly, and not just overnight, but suddenly over a period of time, and I'm talking three, six, 12 months, have become desperately ill with mysterious diseases, chronic fatigue, excessive muscle soreness, foggy-headedness, forgetfulness, even blackouts. Uh, there's never been any history, never, never any contraindications in their medical uh, information to indicate this would ever have come up. We have lost three of our members who have died. Uh, one of our uh, one of our old members was a personal trainer in the peak of health. You know, went for a run, came home at, uh, in the afternoon, sat down, and, and passed away for no reason apparently. And we're seeing this um, in quite a large percentage of our gym population, but we're not seeing it in those who we know are unvaccinated. Now, that's not a study; it's not empirical evidence. That's purely my observation, purely anecdotal. But to me, it's significant because we know these people. We work alongside them every day, and then we're working alongside their struggles that have come out of nowhere, apparently, um, but we believe have come from this whole uh, agenda that's been in place in the country um, to adopt a medical a medical intervention, which was unproven and is now actually proving itself to be uh, somewhat dangerous and possibly lethal. Yeah, there's so much in in that, in everything that you said. And it really relates um, a lot with two interviews that I did last week. I talked to Steve Oliver, who also is a gym owner, and he's currently undergoing like legal um, battles, mm. really, uh, because of remaining open. But he also talked about how the youth, the people, they just needed the gym. Like, so I can, I really hear that coming from both of you loud and clear. I also spoke with Bridget Clare about um, reconnecting to nature, but we talked a lot about health and wellness and a lot of work she's doing around helping people to detox from the impacts of the jab as such. Are you seeing people being proactive around trying to stay healthy and well when they realize there is something going on with their health? Like, are they able to turn things around? I guess I'm saying, are they able to walk up that escalator a little bit once they realize? Do you know what they are? I I, I think it's proportional to the number of times they've taken that treatment, um, in terms of the degree of damage that's that they may be susceptible. And some have gone through that fine, completely asymptomatic, no problems yeah. at all. Um, but the significant number have, uh, in my view, an unacceptable number have. Um, I think it's. It, plotting a path ahead there's a lot of things people can do and there are protocols 
that people can follow to help detox their system, if you like, from this and to reduce the effects of spike protein. Interestingly enough, throughout this whole uh, COVID business, uh, less than 2% of smokers caught COVID. Uh, now, I find that a very interesting statistic, and it turns out that nicotine seems to have a very uh, robust protective effect against the spike proteins uh, that were produced from the vaccine. So um, that's a good thing. And interestingly, at the time, there was a huge push by the government to stop uh, the sale of nicotine in cigarettes and, and push people into vaping, those sorts of things. Now they're attacking that because there's still nicotine in it. It's become increasingly harder to find and buy nicotine patches, which a lot of people were using as a as a strategy or a protocol to use. So there always seems to be an agenda. As soon as we come up with a health protocol that's going to help protect people, boost their immune system, there's a, there's a push against it. Even the, even the availability and the agenda to try and shut down the availability of a lot of vitamins and minerals and, and supplements that people can and should take uh, to boost to boost themselves up. Uh, one thing we've found is we're trying to encourage people to stop using their mobile phones as much as possible, not because we think mobile phones are a terrible thing or people are too connected. We see this a lot in adolescence, of course, they can't stay off the things, but um, particularly around the issue of EMFs or electromagnetic frequencies. And um, using your mobile phone less, particularly if you can use a headset instead of holding it up against your ear. And that's even that's official advice that you shouldn't allow children to do that for extended periods of time because it just starts affecting their, their, um, their, their brain frequencies. Well, that's all part of... Um, preventing people from getting well again or, or achieving optimal health. One of the lectures we went to in in uh, in Bangkok at the medical conference there, uh, there was an anecdotal evidence where um, a practice was dealing with people who had mysterious symptoms of chronic fatigue, foggy-headedness, forgetfulness, all the things that you would as associate perhaps with mercury or aluminium poisoning. Um, and yet their scores were clear. Their, their detox scores, were their heavy metals were perfectly clear. Um, and it turned out in one particular case that got them onto this, they said to this woman, what do you do for a job? She said, well, I'm a merchandiser, I'm a rep. I spend all day in the car and in the supermarket. They said, in the car, what sort of car do you drive? So it turned out she drove a Tesla. Now, EVs are probably one of the most connected vehicles on the planet when it comes to um, electromagnetic frequencies. Now, that's one issue which I think is, is important. They then said to her, well, listen, as an experiment, because everything we're trying isn't making the effect that it should be. Um, drive your husband's conventionally powered vehicle instead, swap cars. So she did, and within six months, she was recording completely normal levels of functionality and cognition and everything once again. So I think that's worthy of more study and deeper study. There's something there that that people haven't researched and isn't is going on, I think. The other thing is I'm starting to question is the use of the batteries themselves. Is part of the EMF problem to do with the battery themselves. When you think about EVs, it's not just a mobile phone, it's a little tiny sliver of a thing the size of a credit card. You are sitting right on top of a massive lithium-ion battery mm -hmm. encased in a steel cage, which if anything was going to act as an amplification aerial, that would do it. Also, that vehicle's connected by sat-nav, it's connected to to the, you know, the manufacturers, it's connected everywhere. Um, so I'm starting to look very carefully at that and advise clients, see if you can reduce your connectivity and your exposure to these things as much as possible. Um, 
Now, we're trying lots of things all at once, nutrition, exercise, all these sorts of things when we consult with clients. So it's unclear what's making a difference, but we are certainly seeing a difference, a big difference in people, in their energy, in their memory, the cognitive capacity. The their, EV their issue patterns. is a big one because there's so much um, push at the moment around that um, you know, climate responsibility and and carbon emissions and all that kind of thing around EVs, right? Making EVs mm, popular mm. and cool and av- ever available. What do you think about that? Because I that doesn't ring true to me. Well, I, I well, I guess it depends who you hang around. Um, but yeah, let's just say it was another thing that my loved one and I disagreed on when our daughter was choosing a car. So mm. I'm very concerned about EMFs and that is not a shared philosophy. So it's tricky. Um, but yeah, a lot of people are being encouraged to get them because they here's the thing, they save money on petrol. But I'm saying, but at what cost to your health? Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think there's nothing wrong with a cautious approach to everything. And that's what we've lacked in the last three years is a cautious and considered approach. So look, actually, look, let's take take some time to review all the evidence and let things run their course on this path and that path and set up some tests and studies and see what actually happens rather than a headlong rush. And And in many cases, a lot of the protocols and strategies put in place just don't make sense at the moment. We have no infrastructure to support the number of EVs that people are, are, mm-hmm. and, uh, are pushing. And I go back to an old program, I don't remember from the, even back from the 70s and 80s, was Judge Judy <laughs> on television. She was a favorite of mine because she sort of had the hard edge of justice there. One of her sayings was, if it doesn't make sense, it isn't true. Uh, and I think that's something that we probably need to bear in mind when we, are, we, we get all this information coming or being thrown at us. We need to sit back and, and, and say, okay, let's assume nothing, consider everything, look at the evidence. Look for motive, maybe also follow the money. Who's making an awful lot of money out of this and who's losing? What are we losing? Are we losing our freedoms? Are we losing our health? Are we losing our capacity to relate to people in a normal way? Are we losing our biological identity? You know, what's the cost of all of this? Where Where is this heading? And if it's not in a good place, what can we do about it? And again, that's, that's where we're trying our best to help people get on the right path and saying, hey, listen, here's three things you could start doing that will turn this around and start heading in the right direction. They're not going to tip your life upside down, but they're things that you can do that will start to make a difference. Well, you've given us a big range of things for people to think about. Exactly. You've given us a huge range of options um, and ideas for people to really think about. Back to the connectivity before I go to Mm. my four questions. So I wear those dorky earbuds, you know, that like just like hanging like strings down, like old school. Um, is that better than the AirPods or am I just fooling myself? Absolutely. Well, I, th- I think so. I think it's better. And, and we've seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of studies that support our stance because I'm totally on board with you. And so is my wife, Anne. We have a campaign to, you know, our grandsons wear them. They think they're very cool. People in the gym wear them. And that's always like... I imagine you see tons in the gym. You're connected by Bluetooth all the time. What is that doing? Because this is not just a receiver. It's a transceiver. So it's sending signals as well as receiving them. And if you hold one of those up to... We used to do it with mobile phones for a laugh in the speaking industry. You know, when you're doing sound checks, you're going to hold a a mobile phone up to one of the big PA speakers and you could hear it going... It's the signals coming out. Well, that's right in your head. That's in your brain. Mm. For many years, when the first people that started using those were corporate drivers. So the guys that meet people at the airport and they got the sign, you know, and and that, and they all had these hands-free 
Bluetooth things yeah. in their in the side of their heads. And we're like, that can't be that can't be good that close to your head to have not only just a mobile phone, but it's something that's transmitting and receiving right like in your ear, not just against your head, is in your ear. And so, I mean, in our household, we turn everything off at night. So at night, the internet goes off, the Wi-Fi goes off, the, the router, um, our TVs are all turned off. Everything is turned off in the house except the fridge, pretty much. And in the morning when we get up and we want to use the internet, we'll turn the internet on and use it. But nothing is left on all the time because I don't think it's a great thing to have all these um, frequencies and waves slamming at you. We're lucky enough to live quite a way out of town, so we're not exposed to that to the same mm. degree. But even so, we still, we you know, even the televisions are not left on standby. Everything's turned off at the wall. Um, so it's a, even, it's a cumulative even effect. Even the blender. But- the blender's turned off at the water okay, night. So, okay, I'm going to get reason. a little bit – I'm pretty good at that, but not as good as you. The cumulative <laughs> effect is the concern, and not just over time, but also, all, you know, all, everything adds up. What about – like you said, you live a little bit further away. What about people that live, let's say, in an apartment building, so they're surrounded by lots more people, or in an office mm-hmm. space where there's tons of people and there's lots of phones and lots of laptops and lots of Bluetooth? Is that going to have more of a negative impact? Yes, it will. I think so. and. There isn't a lot you can do about it. There are products, I think there's one called, I don't know, Guard, Guard something, where they they make garments that are that have supposed protection built in and you can wear sort of some uh, am, amulets and necklaces and things like that that can that they can help as well. Ultimately the idea is not to spend not to spend so much time in and around those. Like all our mobile phone calls are made using a headset. And by the way, it's a, it's a it's not a digital headset. So half of that headset is actually just a hollow tube. There's no signal coming up through that. It's just the hollow tube, which has the sound coming to your ears uh, and trans- transmits it the same way. Um, so the microphone transmitter is held in a little unit that's down, you know, uh, under your neck level. What about the There's earmuff some... ones? So it's not like the AirPod that's in your ear. Is mm. the earmuff one any better or no? If it's if Bluetooth I... and it's wireless, it's, it's... I don't think so. I think it would be doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, you see these Dr. Dre and Beats and all those sort of things that people are wearing. Again, we see them a lot in the gym, people walking around town, you know, um, singing to themselves, which is fabulous. You know, there's nothing like good music to to get you through life. I'm a big believer in that. Um, but I... I don't think that's a smart idea. We just do not know enough about uh, about it. And when we're starting to see evidence, anecdotal evidence for sure, but it, but that's still evidence. That's still in real life. Things are happening that are affecting people in a bad way. Uh, then we need to to take notice of that and say, oh, do you know what? I, I might just take a more cautious approach on this. And I, I have a saying: no one ever made a better decision with less information. Right. So, and sometimes it takes time to get that information in order to make a better decision. But we have time on our side to do that if if we step back and 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 take a view that we need to do some more research. We need to do our own research on that, and listen to a balanced view on things and make decisions accordingly from there. Yeah, and it comes back to what are we putting in and on our body, and to loop back to where we started. You know, what are we doing with our body in terms of the gym? I'm really proud to say my parents. Parents, my dad just turned 80. My parents go to the gym. They live in Wellington um, oh, multiple times a week. And they do, they do do some weight training and everything. And they're small like me. We're pretty like, you know, I'm potentially frail. So I need to do some low, you know, n- you know, not too heavy, but some, what is it? Lots of reps, but not too heavy. No, heavy. 
It's people oh, who lift heavy weights, not high repetitions. Okay. So you need to be lifting what they say, and you need to be lifting between 70 and 80% of your one repetition maximum. So that if you can lift a weight, say it's 10 kilos one time, then your training weight should be six to eight kilos that you're working with. Now, a lot of people think, oh, God, that's so heavy. I, you know, I'll build muscle and get bulky. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> the chance of you getting bulky from lifting weights, particularly for female, is almost zero. Okay. Uh, unless you you're taking it seriously, like a professional female bodybuilder or somebody like that. Um, and, and the thing is, your chance of getting bulky is, is reduced against the bulk that you'll lose by getting better metabolism and burning the fat off. That may be the thing that's slowing you down. Um, and so, building that muscle with that is 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 important. And and I see it in the gym, and you would have seen it, Natalie, as well, if you're in the gym. Um, men not so bad. Men have the opposite problem. When they go into the gym, they see some guy down the back, like, you know, we used to have a member we nicknamed Mental Norm. Uh, and Mental Norm you'll find in sort of any gym in the country. And his Mental Norm is about five foot ten from top to toe and shoulder to shoulder and chest to back. He's just this incredible ball of muscle. And he had, you know, big mohawk and one eye in the middle of his head and teeth and, and lifting phenomenal weights. And all these young fellas would come in and think, I want biceps like that. And next thing you know, they've got six months in the physio. Yeah. Women, and I, I'm generalizing, sure, but women tend to have the opposite problem that they lift too light. And I go down I the gym and they've got like two kilo weight and they're up and down and they, while they're on their phone with their other hand. You know, and I'm like, what are you doing? Your your handbag is heavier than that. You know what? What are you wasting time? You need to lift heavy to stimulate the muscle matrix and stimulate the bone uh, matrix. A study years and years ago done by Dr. Bonner, who I think was with the Cooper Institute, and Kenneth Cooper, who coined the whole word aerobics, ended up changing his facilities to incorporate and and prioritize weight training as in addition uh, to aerobics. And they noticed in their studies, particularly Dr. Bonnick noticed that in one particular case, they had a woman who was chronic osteoporosis. In fact, I think she sneezed and fractured a vertebra. Um, but they noticed within, I think it was 12 months of weight training, she not only halted osteoporosis, but increased the density of bone matrix by 3%, which is phenomenal. But we never hear this on the mainstream. Uh, you know, the, and, and these studies now, there's thousands of studies that validate that. Uh, so definitely well, lifting heavy weights is the solution, not lifting light weights often. Got it. Got it. Well, you've definitely inspired me and and maybe a few others to to lift some more weights. Sorry, you, you got, you got, you got me up on my you. podium there for a second. <laughs> I do apologize. Um, okay, Tim, what is one thing you've done in the last year where you truly upped your brave? Um, I would I would say we've taken our stance up another level. Like we were reasonably strong through through the so called pandemic. On our stance with with health and 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 not discriminating against people, but we've gone up another level again and are now actively challenging narratives that come our way and say no, hang on, look, this this actually is wrong. You, this is not correct. It doesn't make sense. Um, why would you be doing this when you should be doing this? Or the natural way of doing things is doing that. You know, even this whole push towards you know plant based food and and not eating meat and killing the farming industry that is completely nonsensical. Is not validated by science in any way, uh, and is something that we should push back pretty bloody hard on. And so we're we're making a more of a stand, which means then you are sticking your head above the parapet, mm. and I'm copying more flack because of it. But I also find that. 
when we're when we have our roots embedded in the scientific community, we're seeing that uh, we are supported in that. There is support, overwhelming support. And this conference that we went to, overwhelmingly, in fact, I don't think there was a single dissenting voice against the madness of what's happened in the last three years. It's been so unscientific and so um, anti-scientific, if you like. Uh, and even things like common myths, this whole myth about cholesterol. I mean, that was absolutely slammed in the conference. And these are 500 of the top doctors in Asia Pacific. Um, as being a whole nonsense, and you have to think, well, why? Why is that? Uh, and part of that, you know, are we going to get put the whole nation on cholesterol lowering medication? If so, why? Because it hasn't made a damn bit of difference to the heart disease statistics in the last ten years when that's been done. Uh, um, but then, what's the purpose of it? Well, I don't know. Maybe someone's making billions of dollars out of it. Yeah. You know, follow the money. Um, so that's I, I one mean, thing I, love I think everything we, we've you're been saying, a bit more I... stronger with. Yeah, I love everything you're saying. And especially someone like you with such a vast um, years and years, so much knowledge, so much wisdom and the credibility that comes with that. When someone like you says that, I think it will get others who maybe previously hadn't really thought about things from this perspective to go, huh, you're right. That doesn't actually make sense. I'm not really sure why we do it. And I, I just I think the trickle down effect of that is Amazing. The next question is about the bucket list. What is something on your bucket list that you'd love to do, be, or experience in your lifetime, in your hundred plus years, um, that we can possibly help you with? There's two things, if I may, very quickly. One is I would love to see people re-embracing and reconnecting with their ability to to think critically. <laughs> and I think when you're in a state of fear, your brain switches off. You go back to your fight or flight brain. And you become actually incapable of thinking logically and sensibly and reasonably about things. And I'd love people to start. Like people use waking up. I don't. I don't like that phrase so much. But I think people just start to reactivate their power of critical thinking and reactivate the amygdala in their brain and start working properly and effectively and efficiently again. In terms of my bucket lists, um, as you know, I'm a professional corporate speaker, so this is how I how I earn my money and, and pay the grocery bill and um, support all our grandchildren's birthdays and Christmas. Um, so I'm always looking for opportunities to get in front of an audience, particularly a corporate audience, because that often means that these are people who are motivated by you know, this is how they earn their money, by how they perform and how they stay in the game. Um, so getting in front of business audiences particularly is something I've, I've found to be um, an avenue where I can be most effective at reaching people the best and helping people the best. Uh, so any opportunities like that, if you work for a business, if you're influential in a business, if you own a business uh, and you are looking for a conversation uh, that will make a difference in your business about health and well-being for your people, um, then, then um, that's the sort of opportunity I'm I'm looking for. And I know you're a very busy man. How do they find out um, how to book you or inquire? Where can they um, connect with you online? Well, I'd love people to connect with me anyway because I think there's a lot of conversations that that, that we can have, and it's good to know that there are other people who are like-minded individuals. Um, so I'm on, I'm on Facebook. If you look for Tim Bean, I'm also on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably the best for you know business conversations and and business contacts contacts um but if you're looking at something to help me out with um with speaking opportunities uh my agent in new zealand is celebrity speakers if you look up celebrity speakers they're in auckland uh and have a chat to them put through a request uh and and that's probably a good way to get hold of me for for, for that type of thing amazing i'm on celebrity speakers as well 
Um, what is coming up for you? What other speaking gigs or family birthday parties have you got coming up in the next few months? Well, as I said in November, I've just uh, uh, secured a, a three-day uh, event in the Philippines, so that'll be nice. I had thought the speaking calendar was pretty much over for the year, so we could sort of you know, settle back a little bit and take a breather. It's been a very busy year. Uh, so that's coming up next, uh, and then I think after that, then we can sort of buckle down. We've launched a program in our club called Fear No Mirror. <laughs> Fear No Mirror, mm. where we're helping people uh, get in better shape, feel better about themselves and, and how they feel. So by the time they get to Christmas and they you know, go away with the family to the beach, up the lakes or whatever, you know, they can get into a swimsuit or a bikini and feel, feel uh, better about themselves. So that's uh, quite full on because we work with those people on an individual basis uh, to get the best results. Uh, for them on that. So that's going to keep us busy up until the beginning of December. What is the then gym I think called? If, can we run. follow you guys on Instagram with the Oh, gym? yeah, I'd love you to. Yes, it's Performance Health Club. Performance okay. Health Club. And Timur, we've got a, we're on the Facebook. Great. Well, but that's another thing we can do. We'll give you a bunch more followers. Performance Health Club. Um, but we, I'd love to find out um, how that journey goes. I don't know if you're posting about the Fear No Mirror, but that's a cool concept. Um, well, yes. We're, so obviously, we can't sort of share the client's results. That's highly confidential. But we're expecting them in eight weeks to be losing. Uh, if weight loss is one of the markers we're looking at, probably between six to eight kilos uh, in time for Christmas. But the thing is, what we're drumming into them is your weight. The fat that you're carrying is a symptom of the things you're doing. If it gets too much, it can start to be causal to your problems. But for most people, it's symptomatic of the things you're not doing right. So we're using that as a marker. Um, hey, Tim, before we wrap up, what else would you love to share with our audience today? I'd like to leave them with a question if if that's not a, a, a an inappropriate thing to do, Natalie. And it's not a question I want an answer to, but it's a question I would like people to ask themselves, and it's this. At what age would you consider it a smart idea to stop taking the best care of yourself? At what age would you consider it a smart idea to stop taking the best care of yourself? Because I often very sadly see that people have. And if you ask that question, come up with an answer that's anywhere between one and 110, it's probably the wrong answer. <laughs> Um, so if I could leave you with that question, and, and if you think there are things that you can do differently to change that, don't go overboard. Don't change your life. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just think of three little things that you can do from tomorrow that would start to make a difference. We've discussed a few of them today, but just three little things that you could put in place, write them down, share them with somebody that you know and love and trust who can help hold you accountable as well. But ultimately, it's you. You're accountable. It's your health. It's down to you to do it. And that's probably the message I think I'd like to leave people uh, with today. Love it. Thought-provoking and powerful. Thank you so much, Tim. An absolute pleasure and a great privilege to uh, to be on your show. Thank you so much, Natalie. And I'd so appreciate I've been following you, listening to you on RCR. Uh, and, I, I, and I really appreciate everything you're doing and the people you're bringing on board and the information that you're making available to people. I think it's... Um, uh, it's just it's just marvelous. It's wonderful. And uh, I do hope people take on board the things that they hear and assess and evaluate and apply them to their lives. Thank you so much for that as well. Yeah, I think I think it is making a big impact. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. We've been talking to Tim Bean on the topic of no excuses, the hard edge of health. Thanks, everyone. You're listening to Up Your Brave on RCR, Reality Check Radio.